All right, let's turn back to uh, Mark 12 this morning. And we're coming to the close of Christ's public ministry as Mark records it in his gospel. And Jesus has been instructing the crowds gathered in the temple for the last couple of days. And imagine, if you will, what that complex looked like. It was uh, huge. It was about three football fields in length and about half that in width. And there were many courts inside of it. And Jesus is teaching and preaching in that outer uh, court of the temple. The religious rulers of the day have been figuring out how they can get rid of him because he threatened their power and their prestige over the people. They've sent to him a number of uh, uh, groups of people, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the scribes, all for the purpose of trying to uh, trip him in his words so they might accuse him and take him to the authorities and really pretty much get rid of him. But they've not been able to succeed. Jesus really answers their questions well, turns those questions back on them. They're stumped. The people are awed at his teaching, and the leaders finally realize they're no match for Jesus' superior knowledge and interpretation of the scriptures. So they fear asking him any more questions. So Jesus takes that opportunity and the initiative to put a question to the scribes and put them on the spot and he challenges these experts in the old testament law about who the messiah is is he merely a son of david or is he something greater than that and he again shows that their understanding of the anointed one is deficient and they need to uh, rethink uh, his identity Then Jesus gives a warning about the character of these opposers. As one commentator put it, he reveals their character as ostentatious, exploitative, and hypocritical. And not exactly what you're looking for in a spiritual leader. Unfortunately, there are still plenty of folks like that today in supposed spiritual leadership. And then finally, Jesus observes the offering of a poor widow woman in the temple precincts. And while the wealthy people are throwing in their money uh, in great amounts, she stands in contrast to the rich, to the scribes, to the religious leaders of the day. And although she appears to give a much less um, uh, amount, it's really more in the eyes of the Lord because she donates everything that she has. She she stands in uh, stark contrast to these scribes who are known for devouring widows' houses like hers that we read previously. Now, this passage may not directly allude to the Lord's table, but it does remind us about who Jesus is and what he is like. Yes, he's the son of David, promised in God's uh, covenant uh, with King David, But he is also David's Lord, the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of God, and to whom one day every knee shall bow. 
He is also unlike the scribes and the Pharisees who are proud and boastful and they love to be praised by men. Christ is humble. He's a lowly servant of God who came to give his life a ransom for his people. And finally, as a poor widow gave all she had out of devotion to the Lord, the Lord Jesus gave his life that we might have life in him. So let's ask the Lord's blessing as we look further into this passage. Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for your word, for these uh, uh, portraits in the life of Christ that show us who he was and what he was like in contrast to the current religious leaders of the day. And we're thankful for the many uh, common folk, if you will, uh, who did love you, Lord, and uh, gave their all for you like this widow woman. Lord, help us to learn important truths from your word today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the first thing I want you to look at today is this challenge concerning the identity of who the Messiah is, and it's a challenge to the current views and teaching of the scribes who were the ones who were kind of like the pastors and teachers of that day in Israel. Now, the Lord has silenced these opponents, and now he takes the initiative by asking them a question about the identity of the Christ or the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. Now, you remember the word in our English Bible, Christ, is the Greek term for anointed one, and it uh, corresponds with Messiah in the Old Testament, and it refers to one God chose who would come in the future, not just to be a king in the world, but to be the savior of mankind. And that's the part they were missing about the Messiah. Now, Matthew gives us a little more background while Mark focuses on Jesus' answer to these scribes. Matthew tells us that Jesus addressed his question to the Pharisees. And again, we remember that this was a conservative religious group composed of many scribes or teachers of the law. And Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ, the anointed one that God promised? Whose son is he? And they responded to him answering the son of David. So now Jesus comes back with this question we find in Mark's gospel. How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Why are they uh, uh, coming back to me with this statement? Do they really understand what this is all about? So Mark recites that, uh, that question, and Jesus wants to take issue with their perception of Messiah. Now their belief is correct. But is it adequate? Is it sufficient uh, to view the Messiah just in this way? Now, we've seen that Jesus has already been identified with the title Son of David. Remember in Jericho, uh, where he healed blind Bartimaeus, he cried out, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus did not rebuke him for that. He accepted the title. Then uh, as Jesus comes to the city and comes up the road and the people are praising him and singing out uh, 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 to him, they're calling him son of David. And again, he does not uh, 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 rebuke the crowd. He accepts that title. So it was true of him. 
But the problem is their perception of Messiah and that title was that when he came, he would be a mighty warrior king like David who would rid them of their enemies and restore the glory of Israel and set up a kingdom on earth right then and right there. And Jesus always played down that concept. That's not the reason he came the first time. He's rather the humble servant of the Lord portrayed by Mark's gospel who would be the savior of Israel before he becomes their king. Now, Jesus wants to explain that this is an inadequate idea of the Messiah. And what he does here in verse 36, he says, For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. So he's first of all ascribing that psalm to the very words of David, and those words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying David was a real person, that he wrote this psalm, and this psalm didn't just come from him as a human being, it was inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Now what's going on here in that psalm? It sounds a little bit confusing to us. Well, uh, first of all, uh, David is talking about the Lord, all capital letters, okay? So that's Yahweh, that's uh, the God of the Old Testament Israelites, the God of heaven, God the Father. So the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord. Now David doesn't say, the Lord said to me, but he said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So David's not addressing himself. He's talking about the one who would come from the Lord, God the Father, and who would be David's Lord as well. So he's talking about the Messiah who would descend from him in the future. So he asked the question, if David himself calls him, Messiah, Lord, how is he, Messiah, then David's son? Now, I don't know if they got it very well or not. They probably didn't, but we ought to be able to get it uh, today. So Jesus makes it clear in this verse that when he asks how can David himself call him Lord, who's supposed to be David's son, uh, he's He's getting at something deeper because that's just backwards of how the Israelite society would view their descendants. You would not call your son your Lord, would you? Back in that day, the son would call the father Lord, addressing him in respect. It wasn't the other way around. So David's getting uh, 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 uh something else out of this psalm or portraying something else from this psalm because the son being lesser in rank than the father is is not uh, the father's not going to call him lord it should be the other way around so the anointed one the messiah whom david calls my lord here is going to be of david's lineage that was in the promise of the covenant given to david 
but this person would also be David's Lord. Now let's think back. David was a king, right? He was a king of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. You couldn't get an earthly position higher than that in this world in David's age, in the eyes of Israel, in the eyes of God. Nobody could be David's Lord except God. So what's David saying here? He's saying, my Lord, who's going to be my descendant, uh, he is my Lord, he's above me, he's greater than I am. And so he's kind of saying, the idea of Messiah is not just he's going to be a king, he's going to be Lord of David and Lord of everybody else. Because it goes on to say here that he's going to sit at my right hand, And the Lord's talking here, so it's talking about at the Lord, the God of heaven's right hand, and he's going to make his enemies his footstool. So we're talking about somebody who's going to be elevated to the right hand of God on high, and it's not King David, it's King David's descendants, who are and this person is David's Lord. So he's talking about Messiah not just being a king, he is the Lord and he will sit at God's right hand. So this is kind of a veiled disclosure of who Jesus really is, who Messiah really is. Now the scribes were rejecting all this, but if you were a follower of Christ, you would probably start putting two and two together. The disciples already have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, so he's not merely a man. But it was, this wasn't a statement that was clear enough that his enemies could use this as a messianic claim. They wouldn't be able to, to explain it in a thorough enough way to use it against him, largely because they probably didn't understand it. Now, one commentator observed three points from what's said in this verse. First of all, that the one who God addresses is a descendant of David, who also is the Lord, despite being younger, a reversal of form that puts to the, uh, that points to the uniqueness of the figure. So this is a unique person. Secondly, it stresses and explains where Jesus will go on his resurrection at the side of the Father in heaven, of course, sharing authority from his right hand, And finally, that total victory will come one day to this figure as all will be set at his feet. So a very important prophecy about the Messiah showing us that he's not merely the son of David, a human being, but he is the Lord, the God-man. So the view of Messiah believed and taught by the scribes was insufficient. It was inadequate. It was partially true, but it didn't nearly have the whole truth. And it's one reason why they rejected Jesus. Unfortunately, it was the view of many Jews in that day, even the disciples, and that's why so many wanted to make Jesus a king against his will. Now, all this is going to change as the story moves forward. Now, Mark goes on to mention here at the end of verse 37, and the common people heard him gladly. That's you and me. We're the common people. We're the regular folk. 
uh, and they hear him and they're glad at what they hear. Do they fully comprehend it? I don't think so, but they're glad because Jesus put the scribes in their place and uh, they're open to his, his teaching. So even those who are in the city of Jerusalem who live there have not been as exposed as much to the people in Galilee and the others who are gathering for Passover outside the city. They're open to what he has to say. Now, this leads us then to a challenge to the character of the scribes. It involves both a warning of what they are like and then a contrast to them uh, in the widow. So let's take a look at that. First of all, in verses 38 to 40, we have a warning about the character of the scribes. Now again, these men were supposed to be pillars of faith in the worship community. They were supposed to be teaching the people the truth of the word of God and leading them in true worship. Uh, uh, the scriptures, though, had become um, so they had become so involved in the minutia of it and making laws upon laws that they were living really by tradition, not by the word of God at all. And they had become blind leaders of the blind, Jesus said, uh, in need of proper teaching themselves. They're supposed to be examples of faith and devotion, but they had devolved into uh, hypocrites, only concerned with their own place of power in society and the privilege they had in their community. They were exactly the opposite of what they should have been. Now, of course, there were exceptions to the rule. Uh, you remember last time uh, the one scri uh, scribe came and he asked about the great commandment. He seemed genuinely concerned and had the right interpretation. Uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus. He was a Pharisee and he follows Christ. And then Aramith, uh, 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 Joseph of Arimathea uh, also was a follower of Christ. But most of them were kind of sucked into this vortex of self-righteous hypocrisy. Now, Jesus warns about these men in their leadership uh, positions because their character was really kind of messed up. And it's a lesson to us as well today. And again, we're reminded that Jesus was a servant, and those in leadership positions must be like him. His description of the scribes, however, is far from positive. Now, verse 38 then he said to them in his teaching, so the people are still there listening, beware of the scribes who desire to do such and such. So this is the, the supposed religious leaders. They have desires. Now, the word desire is not necessarily bad, but the connotation here is that they have desire for the wrong kind of things. They take pleasure in the wrong kind of things. And their motivation is to be seen and admired by others. So what do they do? What do they love to do? What do they desire to do? Well, they desire to go around in long robes. Now, what's that talking about? Well, um, <clears throat> the, the uh, scribes 
when they went to their synagogues for worship, they would wear the Jewish talith, which went around their shoulders and down in front, probably close to the knees. And that was worn in, in uh, the temple or in worship services, distinguishing them from the people that they were a teacher. So if you wore that outside the temple, the only reason you would do that would be to draw attention to yourself and remind everybody what you were, a a rabbi, a teacher of the law. And so it suggests the idea of dressing in such a way that people are going to pay attention to you. Then they also love greetings in the marketplace. Now we uh, greet folks and say, hey, how you doing today? Uh, but that's not what was going on here. You, they, would, they would say shalom. They would say peace to you, kind of like that. But <clears throat> instead of just the shalom, they received expressions of deference uh, to a religious authority, high accolades, things of that nature. So special greetings by everybody, which again drew attention to themselves and their egos. They also desired the best seats in the synagogue. Now, again, scattered through the nation, there were places of worship. If you had a village of at least 10 men, you could have a synagogue. That would be like uh, uh, today's church buildings scattered around uh, our country, where people would come, they worship God in the synagogue. And in the synagogue, uh, they wanted the best places. So these were the places in the front where everybody could see them. They also were closest to the boxes that contained the scriptures. So again, front and center, so everybody could praise them because they're such marvelous religious leaders. Jesus addressed his disciples and told them, uh, don't desire the best places at, at feasts. Just the opposite of what the scribes did. The scribes would take the best places at the right and left hand of the host. So at the top of the table. Jesus said, well, you take your place farther down, and if the host calls you up, that's fine. But, you know, you don't take your place right next to them, especially if you've not been invited to do so. And furthermore, it goes on to say, they mistreated the most oppressed uh, people for selfish advantage. They devour widows' houses. And what's that mean? Well, there are a lot of ways they could do this. Uh, They could defraud a poor person by giving them some money. Maybe give them so much, but they can't pay you back. So the way you get your money back is you take them to the court and you exchange their property, their house, and you get your money back that way. So they have absolutely nothing. Uh, They might flatter them into giving them a donation for the work they did because they didn't get paid by anybody. Um, They received donations by people, maybe for their teaching or for a long prayer, they might say, which uh, we have an example of that here uh, in verse 40. Uh, And for a pretense, make long prayers. So let's say a widow uh, asked the rabbi to come to the house and pray because she has some kind of matter uh, that she needs prayer for, kind of like we do today. And so he would begin this long, flowing prayer that may actually have nothing to do with what she requested. And then when he's done, he would expect um, a little donation for his prayer. 
So that's what's going on here. That's the idea of having a pretext for doing it. So in this way, the Lord says, they eat up, they devour the the houses, the possessions of the widows who are the, the poorest of society in that day. So here we have this group of people uh, who are supposed to be uh, humble and kind and and uh, leading the people in the things of God. And character-wise, they were totally different from that. And there are all kinds of charlatans in the world today who appear to be doing the Lord's work, but they're really lining their own pockets. They're on the top end of the prosperity gospel while many of their people who sit in the pews are just kind of scraping away for a living. And so we can have the same type of people today in spiritual places or high places, uh, religiously speaking, who are just like these scribes. Now, what's the Lord's assessment of these supposed spiritual guides? He says in the last part of verse 40, these will receive greater condemnation. To, much, uh, to whom much is given, much will be required. They were in positions of authority. They were going to undergo a harsher judgment than perhaps the average person. And if they're acting this way and living this way and failing to teach God's word the way uh, it should be, then they're going to come under a greater condemnation, a greater judgment because they fail to fulfill their duties with humility and integrity and devotion to God. So that's just a warning to them as well as the people. Um, there's going to be payday someday. Now that brings us to the last incident. And this stands in stark contrast to the uh, behavior of the scribes and really puts them to shame. So let's take a look at that, beginning in verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. All right, what's he talking about here? Well, um, this is actually not a treasury. The word that's used there is a container, a container to receive funds. And that money would be taken then to the temple treasury. Now, uh, Jesus is in a particular place in the temple where these receptacles that were shaped like trumpets, uh, where people would, would go in and they would give the temple tax and they would give their donation to the Lord. And this was located in the court of the women. So in the temple, you have this huge outer court that surrounded the whole complex where Gentiles could go as well, and they could worship God and pray. And then the next court would be for the women. And back then, the women and the men were separate. The women were to the east. They would have been farthest away from the temple as far as the inner courts were concerned. And then the next court would be the court of Israel, where the men worshipped. And finally, the court where the temple was located itself, that's where the priests ministered. So Jesus is in the court of the women and he's just observing people as they come and they give their donations uh, for the temple and other things. And you kind of wonder, what what was he uh, observing? Did he watch their expressions? Did he look to see if they were glad or sad 
or pretentious. And he also could tell if a person put in much or if a person put in a little because the rich especially would want to kind of show off uh, by flipping in, you know, silver and gold coins, things of that. So Jesus is kind of watching what's going on here. And in that, that uh, court of the women, there's 13 of these receptacles. And his eye is caught by one person. Okay, many who were rich, they put in much. We would expect that. But then in verse 42, one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a Roman quadrants. So how much is that? Well, this was the smallest coin in Israel, made out of copper, kind of like our penny. And two mites made one uh, Roman coin, which was the lowest uh, uh, monetary uh, coin in Roman uh, money. So uh, this was equal to one, uh, one of these coins was equal to one 128th of a denarius, which was your common man's wage for one 12-hour day. So when you figure that out, put these two together, it equals about 10 or 12 minutes of your work in a 12-hour day. So not very valuable at all. Now Jesus then sees this, and he calls the disciples to him in verse 43. He wants to teach them from what he's observed in this uh, uh, offering uh, place that people went. Now let's remember that someone in society that was being defrauded by scribes, taken advantage of, is actually being an example to them of what true giving in true devotion to God is all about. They were well off. The scribes, the Pharisees, uh, they had uh, much more than the common people. Most of them did. And they could afford to put things into the offering plate and probably did so to be seen by men, as usual. But Jesus now sets the record straight. He contrasts the spiritual poverty and physical prosperity of the scribes and the rich people with the physical poverty and spiritual prosperity of the widow. Things are just turned around the way they ought to be the way God sees things, not the way man sees things. Now, uh, surely, he says, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Obviously, not more in uh, value, but more in the heart that gives it in the first place. For they all put in out of their abundance, like we do. But she, out of her abject poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So she had very little, and she still gave all that to God. If she had held back one coin, would we blame her? She still would have given in half of what she had, uh, worth practically nothing, but she gave all of it, because of her devotion to the Lord, her love for the temple and the worship of God, 
And that means that she would have to go uh, and trust God for the next meal for her sustenance until somehow she got money to replace that. So she puts in what was materially less than others, but spiritually it was much greater. So this is just the opposite of how the world values gifts and the people who give them. We look at the amount that's given, and we're so thankful for the big donation. But we can't see the motive of why somebody gives. We don't consider their ability to give or not. We don't comprehend the devotion or the lack of it, but Jesus always does. One commentator said, the means of the giver and the motive are the measure of true generosity. Means and motives, not amount. Another said, the test of liberality is not what is given, but what is left. So what a contrast to the slick scribes and the filthy rich of the widow's day. And what an example to us in our day where we have so much abundance. Now let's think of a few applications based on those three main points. First of all, we have a reminder about the identity of Jesus the Christ. Many today are confused about who he was. They think, like the scribes, he was just merely a man. He was a teacher. He started a religion. Many don't care. Many don't want to find out who Jesus is. And many have never really even heard of him. Even in the United States of America, there are people now who haven't heard of Christ. But as believers, we do know him. He is the son of David. That is true. Um, But he has not fully come into his kingdom yet. And to him, the Bible says, every knee will bow and confess him as Lord of lords and King of kings, whether they believed it when they were alive or not. But just as importantly, we know him today as the son of God who came into the world to offer himself for our sin and be our savior. That's why we come to that table this morning. Then the scribes of Jesus' day and many church leaders of our day do not know the Lord or teach the truth about him, just like the scribes. Some profess to know Christ, but they teach us a false gospel. That if you have enough faith, you'll prosper materially. You'll have everything in this world that you want, but that's not really what the Bible teaches. They appear to be religious, but they too are hypocrites. Jesus was not like that. Jesus came into the world. He was lowly. He was humble. He served others, and he trusted God for what he needed, and that's the way his people should be. And that's the way he helps them to be. And finally, we have the poor widow, who's an example in at least two ways. First of all, an example that we should not consider everything that we have as our own. It's God's. He may not call on us to literally give everything that we have to him, but that should be our attitude. He's provided the means for all that we have, 
It really belongs to him. And so we need to be careful how we look at it, how we view it, what our attitude is. And we can be quite selfish and make excuses about how we can't afford to give while we hoard up so much for ourselves. She was willing to give everything she had, even though it wasn't that much. But more importantly, the widow is an example of giving all to the Lord, not just our possessions, but our whole life. If the Lord did not have her heart, she would not have given anything. And in our story in the Gospel of Mark, in just a few days, Jesus will show how he gives his all for us when he goes to the cross of Calvary and he's crucified there for your sins and mine. He'll give his life that we might have life in him. In return, do we really give our life back to him in service? Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you'll work these truths into our hearts. We're thankful, Lord, that Jesus was not just a man, he was the God-man the one that you sent to be our Savior. And we pray, Lord, this morning as we come before your table, we'd be thankful for what he has done to save us from our sins. We're thankful, Lord, that he was meek and lowly, that he was not concerned about earthly riches and earthly things. He was totally unlike the scribes who uh, abused and misused their powers. And we're thankful, Lord, that because of what he was like, we can be like him. And then finally, Lord, we're thankful today that we're able to give to you uh, to help uh, spread your word around the world and to help the poor and needy and uh, other ways that we can be used of you uh, to uh, spread our our own uh, gifts to others. And we're thankful, Lord, that Jesus gave his life in our place that we might not have to pay the penalty of our sin. Bless us as we come now before your table, we ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.